0: Before I start the podcast, I have a quick message for all the coaches who are listening. This November, I'm running a master-level coach training, and we're looking for great coaches to join us. The training is where I share with a small group of coaches my most successful coaching techniques and strategies. It's also where Bregman Partners looks to recruit new coaches for our coaching team. Every time we run this training, it is such a powerful reminder to me of how meaningful a chance to learn, practice, and build a coaching community can be. I would love to meet you there. To register, visit peterbregman.com leadership-coach-training or check out the URL in the iTunes store. Okay, now on to the podcast. Welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, your host and CEO of Bregman Partners. This podcast is part of my mission to help you get massive traction on the things that matter most. Emily S. Fahani Smith is with us today. She has recently written the book, The Power of Meaning, Crafting a Life That Matters. Emily is an excellent writer. She writes about culture, relationships, and psychology for The Atlantic, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal. She holds an MA in applied positive psychology from University of Pennsylvania and lives in Washington, D.C. So she's got this understanding of the psychology of what gives us joy and pleasure and positivity in our lives. She also has a skill in writing. If you're going to read a book, both of those things are really useful, especially if it's a book about meaning and purpose and and what's going to make us happy. Emily, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast.
1: Oh, thanks for having me and thanks for all the kind words.
0: No, it's my pleasure. It's it's well-deserved. Emily, let's start with this critical distinction that you make between happiness and meaning.
1: Right. So um, I think this distinction is a big reason why I ended, why I was inspired to write this book. Um, our our culture is kind of obsessed with happiness. Um, it's hard to kind of, you know, go to a bookstore or navigate to your f- favorite website online without seeing articles about how to be happier, 10 steps to a happy life. Um, and, you know, we there's this assumption that a good life is a happy life. And we're kind of constantly getting the message that, You know, happiness is the most valuable thing that we should aspire to. But um, I, you know, I grew up kind of, you know, surrounded by people, and maybe we can talk about this later, who were leading meaningful lives and weren't necessarily devoted to the pursuit of their own happiness. And when I got to graduate school, for positive psychology, I saw that there was this kind of new research um, growing up around this distinction between happiness and meaning, and it was really interesting to me because it suggested that um, there are some downfalls to pursuing happiness and that we should be aspiring to lead a meaningful life. And so, the way this research kind of distinguishes between the two is happiness, and and this also I, would, I should say is kind of. Um, there's philosophy um, that supports these distinctions and this kind of separation between the two as well. So happiness, um, psychologists and philosophers say, is a state of feeling good. It's a positive mental and emotional state. If you feel good, you're happy. If you feel positive emotions, you're happy. And if you feel bad, you're unhappy. Meaning, though, is bigger. It's about connecting and contributing to something beyond yourself. And when people say their lives are meaningful, it's because there are three conditions that have been satisfied. Um, The first one is that they think that their lives have significance, um, which means that, you know, they think their lives have value and worth. Uh, The second one is they think their lives are driven by a sense of purpose. So some kind of valued goal or aim that motivates you and that, kind of makes a contribution to the world and gives you a role to play in society. Um, The final thing is coherence. So people don't think that their lives are just kind of a series of disconnected events. They don't think the world is senseless, but they see their lives as kind of a coherent whole and the world makes sense to them.
0: And so these are ultimately things that lead to happiness, that we don't pursue and this is what I wanted to clarify, we don't pursue happiness for happiness's sake, because the pursuit of happiness often leads to dissatisfaction and unhappiness. But the pursuit of, of these things, and you talk about four, uh, four areas: belonging, purpose, storytelling, and transcendence, which is really a you know a path, but it's, you know, and it's a path to meaning and and that path to meaning ultimately brings on happiness. Am I thinking about this correctly?
1: Yes, I think I think that that's fair to say. So, um Victor Frankl, the Holocaust survivor is, you know, he's a giant in, you know, in psychology when it comes to meaning, and he said that, you know, happiness can't be pursued, it must ensue. It's the byproduct of leading a meaningful life. Um and there's research that shows that when we kind of when we chase happiness and value it in this obsessive way, as our culture encourages us to do, that we actually end up feeling unhappier. Um, it makes us feel lonelier. So, um, you know, whereas if we do things that we think are meaningful, we're left with this deeper sense of well-being and contentment.
0: I'm wondering if you've been in, and I don't want to put you on the spot here, and and you know, of course, you always say that right before you put someone on the spot, but, <laughs> I, but, you know, you don't have to, you know, commit any personal stories or anything, but I'm curious if you've been in debates or conversations with Gretchen Rubin, you know, with the, all these people who have been really focused on happiness and Harvard researchers and, and, uh, you know, people have been on this podcast who talk about, you know, happier and what it takes mm-hmm. to be happier mm-hmm. and whether, you know, whether that, you know, cause they're also based on research and whether that, False pursuit. Whether they're trying to get at the same thing you're trying to get at, but they're just using the label of happy because it, you know, it, that's people are attracted to that. Or are they really trying to get to something different?
1: Right. So I think that, um, and I haven't, I haven't, you know, had a conversation with Gretchen Rubin. Um, I think she's a wonderful writer, and you know, I've, I've, I've read her book, and it seems to me like it's. Um, you know, that all, there's all this kind of psychology research showing that if you do certain things, it will make you happier. And what's interesting to me is that those things are really they're kind of the pursuit of meaning. Like, it's like writing a gratitude letter. It's um, practicing, um, you know, counting your blessings every day. It's, you know, doing good for others, being kind to others. And so these are all kind of meaningful things that we do. Um, I think that, and I'll say two things. So one is that there is a debate within psychology, kind of an academic debate about whether meaning and happiness are really different because um they you know when you when you try to kind of look at people who say that their lives are happy and meaningful and things like that they correlate very closely so people who have meaningful lives tend to be happy and vice versa but there are also so so a lot of people say you can't pull these two apart but i you know i kind of follow the philosophical tradition it goes you know that goes back to aristotle that says that actually these two are different pursuits. And it brings me to the second point I want to make, which is that you it has to do with what motivates you and what your orientation is. Some people I think are really motivated by the pursuit of happiness. And so they think, oh, if I do this, it'll make me happy. And then that's great. Um, and other people are motivated by the pursuit of meaning. And I think that What the research shows is that the people who are motivated by the pursuit of happiness, it's kind of a little bit more of a self involved endeavor because you're worried about your happiness. You know, the happiness is kind of literally like how I feel in the moment. Um, But meaning is about there's this kind of service element, it's giving to others. So I think that the orientation changes your behavior. There's studies showing that when you tell people to go out and pursue happiness, they do things like sleep in, um, you know, go to the spa, whereas if they pursue meaning, they're like, you know, they they um, volunteer, they go visit a sick relative. So I think that it kind of changes our mindset. And I think that the distinction is real.
0: You know, I, I think it's a great, it's a great point. And the example of the spa and the sleeping in, and it's almost like a, a a confusion of comfort with happiness or the, you know, the, the pursuit of positive emotions. I have to say that, you know, when you were sort of saying, you know, being happy is all about having nice emotions and not, and not Mm -hmm. negative emotions um, in the leadership work that we do, we have run a coach training and we run leadership work and we bring people to really heightened emotional states because that's sort of part of the process. And when I've seen someone get super angry Right. Mm -hmm. And there's tons of energy coursing through their body. And I'll pause and I'll say, how do you feel right now? And they'll say, I actually feel really great. Right. And that like, you know, anger or could actually lead, you know, is a very empowering feeling. And there's some of these emotions that we might try to stay away from in order to sort of be, quote, unquote, happy. And Mm -hmm. yet those are emotions that actually give us a sense of energy in our lives. Let's talk about belonging, purpose, storytelling, and transcendence. And I have some questions related to each. But in terms of belonging, and and I think they're relatively self-explanatory in terms of each categories, but explain whatever you feel like you need to in order to answer the questions. Okay. In terms of belonging, I often feel a push and pull. Like I definitely have a sense of belonging with various groups, but I also have a feeling of difference, you know, of not quite fitting in. I mean, I'm Jewish and there's a tremendous amount of sense of community and belonging in, in Judaism and I'm married to a Christian minister. And so like, it, you know, in there, there's a, an, you know, an immense amount of ostracizing from the. And so there's this, you know, how do we belong while also living in this in-between place? Mm hmm.
1: So um, if I can just step back for a second and say, so these four pillars, um, you know, when I was trying to figure out. So the first step in this journey that led me to write this book was kind of figuring out this distinction between happiness and meaning and trying to understand what the definition of meaning was. Next thing was how, you know, how can we actually lead meaningful lives? Like people who say that their lives are meaningful, what do they have in their lives that makes them so? So I did all this research, interviewed people, and these themes came up that I call the four pillars of meaning. So when people say their lives are meaningful, it's because they have these four pillars or some of the four pillars, and belonging is one of them. Uh, To your question, I think that it's... So I... I would define belonging in the following way. You feel a sense of belonging in your relationships or in your community when you're valued for who you are intrinsically and where you in turn value the other person or the people in the community for who they are intrinsically. So so you gave the example of, you know, you're Jewish, your wife is Christian, you know, there's a lot of, you know, community within Judaism. And I think that a lot of times people kind of think that, belonging is a form it's like a form of like groupishness or group identity and I think that groups can certainly provide belonging but that a lot of times if you think of a group like if you think of gangs or if you think of a group like ISIS that it's a false sort of belonging that they provide because you're not being valued for who you are intrinsically you're being valued for what you're willing to do what you believe um, you know who you hate and not for who you are so I think that As you're trying to navigate that in between, it's recognizing that it's really about connecting to someone as a human being, regardless of what these group identities and labels are that they adopt.
0: So this is so interesting, Emily, because it's I think it's one of the hardest things. And it's, you know, I I love your description of it. And I would say I, I don't know that I could come up with examples where I think it's done well. You know, organizations, they value us. And, and and we're valued in them, but for what we're able to produce and how we're able to perform. Families should be, you know, an area where you totally belong no matter what, and yet if you make a choice that is, you know, out of sync with the family, then, you know, ultimately maybe it it ends up in belonging. But, you know, there's a lot of stress in families because they make choices that, you know, their parents or their siblings don't like. And I, I it's very hard for me to come up with an example of, you know, uh, a, a group where really who you are is what I care most about, and I, I would love that, but I, mm-hmm. I see so much where we tend to be so self-interested, or maybe this is bringing both parts of the conversation together, we care so much about our own happiness mm-hmm. that, and what you do affects my happiness that um, I would rather um, you know, just really kind of strong arm you in, I'm I'm not saying I would do this, but it's, you know, it's conceptually that, that strong arm you into making a choice that makes me happy versus really saying, I really fully want you to completely be yourself. I mean, you see that in examples of people who come out as gay or transgender and the challenges that they face in their communities or in their families often, not always. Um, and I'm, I'm just wondering how you how we manage that, how we belong without giving up a part of ourselves and really find those kinds of communities.
1: So I think that it's um, there. Like, I'll say two things. So the first one is I think you're, I mean, you're absolutely right that there is this tension between kind of the individual trying to express who they are, you know, and, and hopefully they're trying to express the, the best within them and I'm not the worst and have that be accepted. And there's not always acceptance from the group. Um, I think that though, the group, so if you're in an organization, yes, as an employee, you're valued for what you produce, the quality of your work, your talent, but that's, I think, a separate matter from this m- I guess I would say moral question of how you're treating one another as individuals. So if somebody messes up, I mean, that, that might take a hit to their, you know, to their professional status, but it shouldn't, um, you know, it, it shouldn't lead them to be treated with contempt and spite, you know? So I think that this kind of, this recognition that like the individual is the unit that we should value um, might lead to kind of a a more compassionate, empathetic response, even if, you know, something happens that's not good for the organization as a whole. Um, so that's one thing I would say. The other thing I would say is I, so I don't think what I'm necessarily saying is that belonging needs to be a case where like, I want to be like who I am. I want to be free to be, you know, who I am and you have to accept me. I think that it's a two way street because like the two way street, because you're, it's not just about your sense of belonging. It's about like the other person's sense of belonging as well. And so, like, I think we need to kind of, you know, contain our own behavior in a way that's respectful to others too. Um, and I'll just say, like, I I know that in families, this is a lot. There's a lot of tension with this kind of stuff. But one of the things I remember so powerfully, is my childhood and my par- my parents were Sufis, which is this form of mysticism that's associated with Islam. It's kind of the spiritual path. And my dad told me once that, you know, I, I couldn't have been more than 10 years old, but he said, you know, whatever religious path you choose to pursue, like we, we will be 100% okay with that. Mm. And so, you know, and so I felt like, this freedom that led me to go off and explore, and interestingly, like it, it i don't I never rejected my parents' spirituality the way that so many people do, and maybe it was because I had that freedom and that sense of belonging that was like this secure base for me
0: you know you're saying something profound that i'm just putting together now, also, which is that when i 'm asking you this question about belonging it's actually a very self Referential question. It's a question that says, you know, do I feel belonging? But what uh-huh. you're also saying, and this is important in relation to the conversation around meaning, is how are how am I helping others feel their belonging? And that uh-huh. actually gives me a sense of purpose, in a sense, which is to say, you know, it may be hard for me to uh-huh. um, to to do that with my children, with my employees, with with clients, even, and yet you know, what parenting and leadership and connection calls us to do Mm -hmm. is to connect with people on that human level and to help them feel their belonging. And in Mm -hmm. a way that that ends up creating meaning for us. And that belonging may threaten us in some ways, but it shouldn't in any way detract from our sense of respect and connection to them as human beings. It's profound.
1: No, well, thank thank you. And I, I think that's exactly right. And I'll just add an addendum, which is that um, when the research shows that when, when you do reject someone or when you ostracize them or when this kind of connection of belonging is frayed in some way, it's not just them that literally, who literally feel like their lives are less meaningful in studies, like rejection leads people to think that, but it's also you that thinks your life is less meaningful. So it is this kind of dynamic um, connection.
0: A friend of mine who's depressed was recently given advice to pursue purpose, right? Mm. I'm talking about purpose now, to look for ways in which he could be of service to others. He hasn't done it yet. He's stuck. And I I realize that part of why he's stuck is that when you don't have purpose, it's hard to well up the energy to pursue purpose, that pursuing Mm. purpose in and of itself is driven by purpose. So what advice do you have for him? What advice do you have for someone who's not necessarily focused on purpose and can't quite figure that out?
1: Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I had a professor um in graduate school Martin Seligman who said that, you know, one of the best cures for depression is going out and volunteering in your community and um and I think I mean I think there's really something to that because depression is so much, it, you're ruminating so much about like, I'm not good enough. Like my life is awful. The world, world is awful. It's all these kind of, um, you know, it, it, you're very much in your own head and to the ability to get outside of it, I think really helps, um, heal, heal the pain for somebody who, um, is having trouble taking that first step though. I would recommend maybe reframing purpose as lower P purpose than capital P purpose, because I think that there. are we put so much weight on this idea of purpose that you have to go find your purpose or find a purpose or your calling. And if you're not doing that, then you're not, you're failing at the whole purpose thing. Um, but actually, like purpose can come in really small ways too. There's a study that I talk about in my book, which I love, which shows that adolescents who do chores around the house actually end up feeling a stronger sense of purpose. And the reason is because they're serving and they also have this role to play and are contributing to something bigger, which is their family. Um, So I I think that maybe as a first step recognizing can be really small. You know, if you're at home, like, you know, doing the dishes or like making breakfast or, or something like that. Uh, yeah, and 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 I was going to say something else, and I forgot. But maybe it'll come to me.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, but it's great, and it's it's the, the idea of little ways in which you can do something that helps you feel, you know, accomplished in a certain way, or like you've added value, or you've created that, and that could be you know small or it could be big. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I found so interesting about your storytelling focus is that it's not just about finding meaning or highlighting meaning. It's about creating meaning. The choosing to tell a story is an act of creating meaning. Can you just talk for a minute or so about that?
1: Right. So, right. So we have belonging, purpose, and the third pillar, storytelling. So this is an interesting one because it's like when we think about stories, we think about the stories we tell each other, or the stories we read in novels, or see on TV or the movies. But this is really about the story you're telling yourself about yourself, and I think that we don't always realize that we're the authors of our own stories and can change the way that we're telling them. So if I tell you to tell me a, a story from your childhood that really encapsulates who you are, the cho- the choice of story is, is a narrative choice. Like you're choosing a particular story and you're choosing to tell it in a particular way. Um, and so these all have really profound consequences for how meaningful you think your life is. Um, The first thing is that I mentioned earlier that part of meaning is believing that your life is coherent. And so the act of just kind of weaving the story and bringing your experiences together in this bigger narrative makes, makes meaning for you because you kind of come to a deeper level of understanding about who you are, why things happened, how you grew from these experiences, how they changed you, so on and so forth. The other thing is that certain types of stories that we tell, um, they kind of, lead us to, to, to having more meaning and to leading more meaningful lives. Um, Dan McAdams, a psychologist at Northwestern, has found that people who tell redemptive stories, so stories that move from bad things happening to good things happening, um, are more generative, which means that they are more likely to contribute to society, you know, mentor the young, things like that. Um, And another study, which I love, um, by Adam Grant at Wharton Mm -hmm. and Jane Dutton um, at the University of Michigan, shows that when you tell A story, when you kind of break people, break a group into two and tell half of them to tell a story about themselves as um, somebody who is a giving person, and they tell the other half to tell a story about themselves as somebody who receives a lot of kind of generosity from others, the people who tell the story of themselves as givers later on end up behaving in a more generous way. So these stories can actually change our behavior to be more consistent with leading a meaningful life.
0: Because I see myself as someone who dot, dot, dot. Exactly. It's an identity
1: thing. Exactly. It's
0: great. Transcendence is your fourth. And I love what you write about it. And it does seem to be a critical element of meaning. Here's the challenge that I I thought of as I was was reading it, which is, in some ways, it's the exact um, opposite challenge of purpose, that pursuing transcendence may naturally block it. And, and that in some ways when you talk about, you know, that we don't have to fully change our lives in order to find meaning, we find these little ways. A lot of the examples you give are people who, you know, spend 14 hours a day meditating or we're on a spaceship overlooking the earth. Mm-hmm. How do mundane people like you and, and I um, reach transcendence without, a lot, you know, without the pursuit of transcendence getting in the way of the feeling of transcendence? And I just mentioned this on a previous podcast I think of Martin Buber, you know, you mentioned uh, Frankl, Martin Buber, who's, who sort of talks about I-thou moments versus I-it moments in the sense of, you know, when you're really deeply connected, the, the connection takes on this transcendent experience versus, you know, an I-it moment where the relationship is one uh, which is mediated by your thoughts, by your analysis, by avoid- And transcendence is about really being in that moment. How do we get there without pursuing it?
1: Yeah, it's, um, well, I think that, so I, I also kind of give examples of people doing it in nature, which I think is like one way that is accessible to everyone, you know, um, Emerson, the American transcendentalist, walking in the woods, he kind of felt his, you know, sense of self dissolve and he felt this kind of connection that was with something beyond himself, which, you know, he might have referred to as the divine or, or something like that. Um, and 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 that's, that's what transcendence is. I should define it. It's these moments when you are you kind of are lifted above the hustle and bustle of daily life and you feel connected to something bigger. I love the Martin Buber example because like it shows that you can you can achieve this in relationships as well. I'm sure, you know, listeners have had these conversations where you're just kind of so connected to the other person that you're in flow. You lose all that sense of time. You're not checking your phone. You're not worried about anything. And there's that, it's like a transcendent moment. It's a beautiful example. I think one, you know, and I'll say this too, I think transcendence can exist on a spectrum. So, you know, you have those moments where, you know, the person who's meditating 14 hours a day has a major transcendent experience where his sense of self completely washes away. And he realizes that it's an illusion, you know, same, with the, you know, the astronauts who go into space and experience what's called the overview effect where seeing the earth from space is just so, you know, it just shifts their mind completely and changes the way they think about the world. That's one extreme. I think on the other extreme, it can be, again, these small moments, you know, you, you, you watch your child learning to do something new and it's just like, wow, the wonder of life, the miracle of life. Um, for me, you know, I, I, I live in Washington, but I live very close to Rock Creek Park. And just being in the woods is an experience that just helps me kind of clear my head. I think meditating, praying, going to church or service or, you know, whatever it is that um, engages you spiritually. These are other ways. And they might not be here on the spectrum, but they're kind of over here and over here and they get you there.
0: Right. Um, and and just we're running out of time, but I would love, you know, like, uh, you know, this is an, an absurd request. A couple of moments Uh, or sentences about love where you end the book?
1: Oh, love. So I, I, you know, love is my other favorite topic aside from meaning. And when I was kind of looking back at what I'd written about these four pillars and trying to figure out what it was that united a meaningful life, like, was there something bigger that really defined a meaningful life? And it seemed to me that it it was love, you know, time and time again, the stories that I told were of people, you know, serving others, these kind of small acts of of love. Um, I told a story about a guy who was a drug dealer who put that aside to kind of start a fitness company in his community because he wanted to go back and make his community better with this work and not worse through drug dealing. So that was one. I talk about a zookeeper who, cares for her animals. She's willing to like clean up poop for, you know, 80% of her time each day because she loves her animals and that's what her calling is. Um, so I think that at at the bottom of a meaningful life, it's these small acts of love that we put into the world and we might not ever know how they affect others, but they end up kind of just spiraling out and affecting others in ways that are, that are profound, even if we don't know it.
0: So does, is love underlying the drive for meaning or is love the outcome of a life lived with meaning through these four pillars?
1: I think that, I think, you know, certainly what what I'm, what I was saying is certainly the latter, you know, which is that you, when you live with meaning, you're kind of putting this love in the world. I think that you can also say the former, which is that I think our yearning for love and our yearning for meaning, some might say that those are kind of, the same thing, you know, in, you know, you think of like a spiritual seeker who, you know, in, in Sufi poetry. And I wonder if, if it's like this in in, in Jewish, Jewish mystical poetry, I know it's like this in kind of Christian mystical poetry that the God is always talked about as the beloved. And so, you know, the seeker is trying to, Devote himself to the beloved, and his 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 life is made meaningful in that pursuit of trying to go closer to God. So I think that you know it works both ways.
0: Yeah, that is true in, in Jewish mystical poetry. And what I want to say also is that you know a lot of Jews that I know actually rely on Sufi mystical poetry. You know, Rumi is very very present in in you know a lot of our traditions. So you know we share tradition in that way. And I think that when you get to you know all these traditions. Uh, you know, end up pointing probably in a very similar direction. So so it's, you know, not, not dissimilar from your book and the idea of belonging and purpose and storytelling and transcendence. I mean, that's sort of the, the kindling that makes uh, the religious fire in many ways.
1: No, I think that's so true. I think that if you look at what makes religion such a powerful source of meaning for people, it's because these pillars are there. And I mean one thing that all these religions share is this kind of ideal of love that they hold up.
0: Emily Esfahani Smith, her book is The Power of Meaning, Crafting a Life That Matters. Uh, It was a delight to read. It's terrific to be in conversation with you. Emily, thank you so much for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, Peter. It's great talking to you.
0: Before we go into the closing music, I want to remind you again that my master level coach training is happening in a few short weeks. We'd love to see you there. To register, visit peterbregman.com forward slash leadership coach training or check out the URL in iTunes. you enjoyed this episode of the Bregman Leadership Podcast. If you did, it would really help us if you subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. A common problem that I see in companies is a lot of busyness, a lot of hard work that fails to move the organization as a whole forward. That's the problem that we solve with our Big Arrow process. For more information about that or to access all of my articles, videos, and podcasts, visit peterbregman.com. Thank you, Claire Marshall, for producing this episode, and thank you for listening.